In today's episode, we are exploring origin stories. Where does it all begin? Was there a singular experience or encounter that sparked a desire to work on social change? How do you go from being affected by an issue to contributing a few times to the realization that there is more to this, that working in social change could be the calling or the profession? And how do you go from that to wanting to build an organization and so much more? In this episode, we bring you a collection of three different origin stories. Anuaga and her daughter Meher Padamji talk about how they found their way into philanthropy. Gagan Sethi talks about the start of Janvikas, an organization dedicated to fighting for human dignity and equality. And finally, we hear from Matthew Spacey, the founder of Magic Bus. I come from an upper-middle-class family, and my father ran a small business, which, of course, was only for the boys, the two brothers. I was never, never encouraged to join it. And uh, then when my husband, who was an employee, a professional employee in our company, and I married, uh, he was able to grow this business, really grow it. And when we went public, which was unfortunately a year after he died, I mean, sorry, just a year before, but he couldn't enjoy the wealth because when we were growing, we kept investing whatever profits we had back in the business. So there wasn't much philanthropy or anything. It's just growing the business. But when the dividends started coming, that's when we realized that we are quite all right now. <laughs> and by training, I'm a social worker. So I definitely know what the problems are. Having said that, the trigger wasn't my background, but my son, who was very keen that substantial part of our wealth should be given to society. You are a social worker. Your needs are not much. Why don't we decide most of our money to be given away? And soon after that, he died. So that stayed in my mind that that was his wish. And what he said made a lot of sense. I was just uh, not ready at that time because I was so involved with the company that the outside world really didn't strike me so much. I think mom's being very uncharitable to herself in the sense that... Uh, you know, I, I believe that philanthropy, of course, money is really important. But I think giving of your time, giving of your skill set is as important. And, um, and there, mom and dad have always been giving of their time and giving of their skill set in terms of um, working with communities, whether it was a village outside Pune when we were just starting Thermax in Pune, or whether uh, mom decided one day when we were young that she would bring two boys from the streets. She spoke to their parents and she brought them home to try and see if she could give them a home, give them an education. And first day they were fine, second day they were fine. And I think by the third day they said, Ye to bhut bangla hai. this is like a ghost house. It's too large. 
too big for us. We like our freedom on the streets. So all I'm saying is that I think I think maybe not with money, but I think with your time, your your uh, career, which was being a social worker. I think a lot of uh, investment has been done over the years. When my father passed away, uh, he had just turned sixty, and it happened very suddenly. Having said that, there was always a sword hanging over my father's head because he had had a bypass surgery and a stent put in um, a few years before that. But of course, it was a huge shock. My father was somebody who he was not just a brilliant person at uh, Thermax, but an absolute wonderful human being and although very very involved i think his first love was thermax uh second love was my mom i would say that he still made time for us on a sunday he still took time out for holidays so i i really really missed him as somebody who was a big mentor to me also in the business because i had only just started in the business so it was a it was a very big loss as a father as well as as a as a person in business and and then a year later my brother passed away now that to me was just good god why why us why us as a family and i just kept questioning god and i kept thinking how unfair he was only 25 and he had given my father my father had he was working in venezuela and quite happy being there and my father had actually gone there and persuaded him to come back to india and try out working in the company and if it didn't work he said within a year you go back and i won't stop you and so this young boy came back and died on us on our roads coming from bangalore to pune very difficult to take that death and i have to say my mom whom really i should have been there as a support for her was a huge support for me uh, i'd love mom to talk about it because i think her philosophy and the way she she coped with it uh, was incredible incredible when my husband died the board asked me to become the chairperson and I didn't want to. I just didn't uh, have faith in myself to be able to do this, and I had lots of self-doubts. So there were two things I had to cope with: missing my husband terribly and assuming this responsibility. So I went for Vipassana program, which is the Buddhist meditation for ten days. it was a little difficult but i'm not a quitter once i decide i'll do something i did it and i found that extremely helpful i can't tell you i am a daily meditator for an hour my day starts with meditating for an hour and i just find that for example i think you said god takes away but if you look around that's the rule all of us will be taken away we make rules that young shouldn't die or that it's a tragedy it's not a tragedy 
it's something that's going to happen which we haven't acknowledged. And then we blame God for it. There's nothing as certain as death. We don't know whether our podcast will be appreciated by the people. We don't know anything. We don't know how long COVID will last. But all of us are going to die. And we don't know when and how. And not internalizing this basic thing, we create so much anger, sadness for ourselves. We keep asking why, why. Why has no answer and it keeps on adding to our suffering. So I always say that after a death of a dear one, pain Inevitable, is in it. but suffering, suffering is optional. optional. Suffering is optional. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So after my son died, I was inquiring uh, who is worth going and talking to. And everyone seemed to say, go to Bombay and talk to Shahin Mistry because she started an amazing NGO called Akansha. So I went to Bombay and Shahin, we met at the Willingdon Club and Shahin says, I brought a long list of questions. I don't, I blanked out a lot of things. I don't remember. And we took to each other. And in a few months, I suggested that we start Akansha centers in Pune. So I brought Akansha to Pune and Shaheen invited me to the board. And uh, very soon we realized that the few hours we spend after school with these children doesn't have a great impact on their final results. So why don't we try and run municipal schools? We run them. Fortunately, there was a very nice commissioner whom I knew. He agreed to give us a school. And that's how the school model started. Today, we have 21 schools. So that's how my journey started. And one day, about 13 years ago, she said, I want to start something called Teach for India, which is based on Teach for America, which will impact the lives of many more children. Would you partner me? And I readily agree. Anu Aga retired as chairperson of Thermax in 2004 and was succeeded by her daughter Meher Padamji. Anu Aga has contributed immensely to philanthropy. She has worked closely with Teach for India and the Akanksha Trust. Today, Anu continues her philanthropic efforts, writes and gives talks on the subjects of corporate governance, corporate social responsibility and the role of women and education. Both my parents were refugees from Pakistan in 1947. My father's father was a station master and he had just about to retire and he had built a grand house. You know, a station master in the British Railway was something. So he spent most of his resources in building that house. And my mother's father was a small-time lawyer in Lahore. Uh, who rented house and, you know, just trying to, you know, what a small-time lawyer tries to do. And both of them had to come to India. And uh, my father's father lost everything. He had everything in that house. And my father was the youngest and he had to take care of the whole family. They came to Delhi and they were given a 
plot, a refugee plot in Kalkaji. And my father got a boy service in the civil aviation department uh, as a radio operator. And uh, he would have these night duties. And that time, Saptajang Airport was the airport, which now then became Palam and then became T3, where you all land in a very grand way. But he would actually do the night duty and in the morning cycle back to Kalkaji. And on the way, he would pick up bricks. And then on his day off, which was not necessarily Sunday, he would actually make the boundary wall and make the rooms and things like that. And therefore, I saw my father having seen a huge house, now living in a refugee plot. But then later on, he got transferred to Ahmedabad and I went to St. Xavier School and college. And But somewhere, those years of seeing him struggling to make two ends meet have remained in my I was trained in St. Xavier School, then on to college. And in college, I was introduced to three professors who were trying to experiment with achievement, motivation with Dalit communities. And I would go to the villages with them uh, and do those surveys. And that's the first time the caste system hit me very strongly. I used to smoke and... Uh, I told one of my friends, why don't you take me to shop? I need to buy a cigarette. And they looked at each other and said, but we'll have to go to the village. I said, yeah, let's go. And they took me there and uh, they stood out and I was walking and they pulled me back. And from far, they said, he's a fellow who's come from outside. He needs a cigarette. And that shopkeeper who comes from an upper caste looked at me and said, okay, how many? I said, whatever, how you have a packet of Bristol at that time. And he threw the cigarettes. And I find funny fellow, he's throwing the cigarettes. And so I, you know, I picked them up and uh, and I gave money. He said, No, put it there. And then I said, Well, what's going on? He said, No, no, you know, you come and stay with us, and we are uh, we are Dalits, and therefore you are also a Dalit because you stay with us. I'm talking 76. And that's when I decided boy, uh, this is something different. And then I went on to do my master's in social work and I passed out and I did very well. And I wanted to come back and work with this group. I worked with them for 10 years uh, in the Behavioral Science Center. And then an incident happened where four of my people were killed in a caste violence. And then me, my colleague Martin and my guru, Professor Contractor, we sort of fought that case. We won that case, but I came back and wept when we won that case. because And people said, but you know, victory, you won. I said, no, I've lost. Actually, I've proved that justice is not available. Because if so many people and so much of backing, institutional backing, resources are put to fight one case, I've only proved that justice is not available. Janvikas was born with that idea. We left three of us, and we said, we will work on building people, communities, building leaders who will fight for justice. Justice and development, to me, go hand in hand. And that was my beginning of starting up Janvikas in 87. I continue to do that till today. Janvikas 
Janvikas has since become an incubator with a special focus on building leaders. They work to empower grassroots community leaders, community-based organizations and civil society organizations to access quality services and participate meaningfully in democratic processes. So evidently I'm not Indian, yeah, but I, I came to India um, actually when I was about 18, purely by chance, sort of a, as a gap year, thinking that I would go and work in an orphanage actually at the age of 18. And I still people say, why India? And I, I really don't remember. I mean, it's something obviously clicked in my brain. I'd never met anyone who'd been to India. Um, and this was in sort of the late 80s. And anyway, popped on the train. And then unfortunately what happened was the promised job didn't exist. And so I ended up going up to the Himalayas to work in a Tibetan refugee uh, center. And I was assigned into a, into a monastery, which scared the pants out of me, to be honest with you, because um, so, they made me sign a contract. And so at the stroke of midnight, I ran away on a train. <laughs> I thought I'm not going, because I would have to live the life of a monk and prostrate at five in the morning, which probably wasn't sort of something that I wanted to do at 18. And then got on a train to Calcutta, which was the only, to be honest with you, it was the only train that was going. So even that was a little bit of, you know, that's, that's how life rolls, isn't it? And I ended up in Calcutta, absolutely loved it, worked for the brothers um, in Calcutta um, on a leper colony for half the day and then a TB hospital for the other half and did that for, I, I think, nearly eight months. And just, it was obviously life shaping in so many ways. I'm sure set the stage for a magic bus. Uh, and then coming back to the UK and just really I, a part of India was just certainly embedded in, 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 in sort of in my heart. And I you know, was quite keen to continue my involvement really with, with India and, and the experience I'd had. Um, and it kind of came around about in a, in a strange way. But eventually I was asked to come and work in India for a travel company, Cox and Kings, and look at you know, selling holidays to Indians actually in, in, in the subcontinent. So that that was back in 96 and you know even sort of having been in india for some time before then you know walking down the roads of bombay or driving through this this lovely city there's sort of the whole dichotomy of seeing so many people who were living in you know in a normal middle class or luxury condition versus you know obviously the people that were living in slums and on the streets and for me it was quite shocking so i felt it's probably only a matter of time before I wanted to get involved in that. I had a, I was a young lad then, 29 years old, and had been given this big job. So, so that was important to me that I managed to settle down in that. So I spent a couple of years just, just doing that. But in 98, 99, I started some of those, some of the organizations that actually just rattled off. Actually, we started sort of going and knocking on doors and saying, look, how can I get involved? How can I involve my company? And it was probably more because I was so ill-qualified to work in the social sector that I, it, I found it very difficult to find a match or for anyone who felt that I had anything particularly valuable to give. It's a thing that I feel still hasn't really resolved itself. And, uh, and that is that, you know, have this, you have all this resource um, that's so mismatched sometimes. And so anyway, I started, a, I, I happened to play a lot of rugby. I played for this incredible rugby club called the Bombay Gymkhana, which is for those listeners who know Bombay, it's possibly the most exclusive club in the city, probably even in the country. And, and, and I was lucky enough to enter as a playing rugby, uh, as, a, as a rugby player rather than a member, where, you know, I, I've met a lot of friends and it was a very important part of rugby. It's always been a very big part of my life. But what was, what was interesting was that there were very few rugby 
clubs in the country in those days. And there was a lot of cribbing about, you know, we don't have anyone to play against. And yet there were these young men all on the sidelines of the rugby pitch every week, throwing the rugby balls around. And this is, you know, this is, I guess, a reflection on this lack of opportunity structures that you have for young people and why weren't they playing rugby? And so it was quite a straightforward connection for me that I would ask those young rugby players, young people on the sidelines to then get to participate in you know, in, in rugby, and I would then train them to be rugby players. And so, you know, I was searching. I couldn't find, you know, I couldn't find an organization to work with. You know, I, I was thoroughly enjoying my rugby, and I thought, well, you know, it's been a big part of my life. Let, let me sort of understand and see whether I could do that with, uh, with, with, with these young men. So that started the journey, really. So, you know, I think I often disappoint a lot of people when they say, you know, we're Magic Bus. I think we, we have... 600,000 children now in the program, but there was no great vision then. I think it's such an iterative organization. It really, it almost just happened. And so, you know, and, and it was born though, very importantly out of this, something that I really enjoyed doing. I think if I hadn't enjoyed doing it so much, um, and, and that is using sport and the outdoors, I think it probably would have faltered at the start. And I think that for me has been, it was a very big lesson. So it, it was something that I think I, I was passionate about. And it seemed that the boys who took part also, you know, we're really, we're extremely um, engaged in. And I think, you know, it's very relevant to them, you know, having a sort of a, a mentor, but also playing sport and playing a physical game um, gave them all the sort of cliches of sport you, you'll hear about, the focus, the camaraderie, the teamwork, the communication skills we started playing out literally in front of us. And so the listeners who understand the sort of the socioeconomic sort of sentiment in a city like Bombay, to have young men who live on the street walk in the front door of the Bombay Gymkhana <laughs> and, you know, in their chuddies and whatever they had on and walk into the changing rooms and literally undress and change in front of, you know, the wealthiest of Bombay and then walk out together and play as equals on a rugby pitch and then come back into the changing room because it's all a big part of the sort of, you know, it's all part of the game, right? And so change and then, you know, and talk and communicate. You know, that was possibly today's the most outstanding moment of, you know, the entire 23 years of Magic Bus is that realization. My sense of, you know, over the course of the 25 years of doing this is that people generally want to get engaged. They want to have impact. They want to understand how they can affect and impact some of these newspaper articles that, you know, that this philanthropist reads. And, and I think therein lies such a big problem. You know, we, we build high walls around our communities and we're becoming more and more isolated from each other and more polarized in many ways. And actually something that we're working on at the moment is, is how do we start understanding how you make better communities of conversation, you know, around common ground. For me, it was rugby. It could be computers or it could be art. It could be music. It could be anything. But generally, when you bring people together that have this common interest, um, it starts to provide a platform where people can have a more meaningful and more empathetic conversations from both sides. And so for me, a lot of the conversations we're having at the moment, how do you start creating that on a, on a massive scale? And, um, but, but, but lies at the very heart of how we started and why we started Magic Bus. Since 1999, Magic Bus has transformed the lives of over 1 million children and 35,000 young people in India. Magic Bus offers meaningful childhood to livelihood programs that stay with a child through their adolescence into youth, providing education, life skills and employability skills. What started as a seedling in the Bombay Gymkhana is today an organization that has expanded to other South Asian countries as well.
These were the stories of three people who came from different backgrounds, different beginnings and yet found themselves fighting towards one cause. For a billion to thrive with dignity and equity. You can listen to the stories of Anuaga, Meher Padamji, Gagan Sethi and Matthew Spacey in their respective episodes of No Cost Extension. Linked in the show notes down below. Find us at dasra.org forward slash nce for more details. Subscribe to No Cost Extension on your favorite podcast platform.